Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and today we welcome back author and recognized Great Lakes historian, in my opinion, extraordinaire, Frederick Stonehouse. Greetings, Frederick. Good evening. Now, in our last episode, we talked a lot about the paranormal and ghost ships, and maybe not everyone's as interested in ghost stories or tales of the paranormal as I am, so... If otherworldly goings-on are not your thing, Mr. Stonehouse also has written several fascinating books on subjects ranging from shipwrecks to pirates, infamous criminals, and their nefarious activities around our dual peninsulas. Let's jump forward just a little bit to your book, uh, Blood on the Water, about Michigan's challenges and contributions during the Civil War. How did that book come about? Like all of them, somewhere you had a germ of an idea of knowing more about something. You, I mean, we we grew up with the Civil War, but we grew up with the Civil War from the standpoint of the Southern Army beating this, the, the death of the Northern Army or the reverse of it, great battles, uh, thousands and thousands of casualties. And we think in terms of blue and gray, but we don't necessarily think in terms of water and the role that water played in it, and particularly with the Great Lakes. For example, one of the points that came out of the book I did was all of the Great Lakes influences that played into the Civil War, particularly all the products that were coming out of the Great Lakes that were supporting the Union war effort. Most critically, iron ore. The North was providing roughly 60% of the iron going into the, the war effort, coming out of the great iron mines and mostly in uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. That's incredible. Uh, most of that all was coming out of the port of Marquette down through the Sioux Canal, which had only opened just six years before, before it finally hit the furnaces, obviously, in Cleveland and the Lower Lakes area. So that becomes a critical facet of what was happening. Towards the end of the war, when the South is becoming increasingly worn down by the pressures of battles, by being unable to replenish the troops or the ammunition they're using or the the weapons that are being lost on the battlefield are not being replaced because the Union Navy has closed off the South in terms of blockade. They came up with a desperate plan that they would take a unit of the Southern Army, primarily under the command of uh, General Morgan, who was known to be a very audacious cavalry commander, get them on fast steamers out of Charleston, which was still open at the time, bring them around the Atlantic seaboard into the port of Portland, Maine, right at the south end of the state, seize the port because there really was very little Union defense to it, and then take that considerable un or southern unit, and we're eh, somewhere around 5,000 men, and make a massive cavalry raid into the north to disrupt the northern re rear, to cause Lincoln at that point now to pull troops out of the field that would be able to defend against that, that would weaken the, the forward forces for the Union, and that in turn would allow then the South to be victorious. So there were lots of little schemes like that that were playing in, in, in the, the backwaters, if you will, of the Great Lakes. Others involving breaking uh, considerable numbers of Union prisoners out of the prison camps that were in the North and turning them loose to create havoc in the Union rear. It was a different look at the Civil War as it was fought and as it could have been fought had there just been a change along the way that would have made some of these schemes work. It's kind of interesting to me too, that Fort Mackinac uh, really didn't play much of a role 
during the Civil War. I guess, you know, it's being so far, located so far north, but then you think, I just visited, I believe it's Fort, uh, Fort, Fort um, uh, Zachary in, in Key West, and that was actually a Union fort all the way down at the tip of uh, tip of the uh, the keys there tell us just a little bit about Mackinac Island's role if you if that's somewhere around virtually none and nothing yeah right um, but they did play one interesting role in the war uh, as the war was beginning to unfold Lincoln wanted three political leaders from the south that it was able to get his hands on I believe from Tennessee put on ice he has suspended the writ of habeas corpus so he could seize people, put them in jail, and that would be considered to be legal. But he wanted these three guys, forgot their names, put on jail. Well, restating that, he wanted these guys, uh, I do not remember their names, put on ice, just put away for a while. They could cool off. They couldn't create any havoc at home. They just kind of disappear. And he chose to do that. The Army chose to support that by putting them, locking them up at Fort Mackinac. Now, that's okay because they brought them up in springtime. And springtime on the island is a wonderful time to be there. Summer was very nice, too. You got into early fall, and it was a little bit different than what they were used to in the south. But the second winter began to come towards in October. Attitudes changed completely. Now, Lincoln has set it up to, for him to release them back home. All they had to do was sign a pledge of loyalty to the Union. Sign the pledge, you're free to go, go back home, because we know you are honorable men and will honor the pledge that you have signed. Well, the second they got the first cold blast of air came through, all three of them signed on the dotted line and headed back south. That's uh, very understandable. <laughs> I like to spend New Year's Eve on, uh, on Mackinac, and I have a little bit of thicker skin than I guess the most of the people from the south. The last time I did a, an overnight there, it was negative 17. So I could see signing that treaty or that that document pretty quickly, especially since I, I was. That's why God made hot of holiday inns. <laughs> you, you mentioned iron ore and, and some of the other resources coming out of Michigan during the uh, the Civil War. There's so many stories about lost gold during the Civil War um, near Frankfurt, Christmas Cove where, uh, by Traverse City, where I grew up. Um, and who hasn't dreamt at one time of another finding lost treasure? Why was so much gold coming? in and out of Michigan, uh, Civil War gold during that era? Uh, not to my knowledge. Uh, they were they were still working, uh, you know, banking by credit. So you could transfer monies back and forth literally by a telegram, literally by a coded letter. You didn't have to physically pick the gold up and drag it from one bank to another bank. Uh, that's often been an illusion. Certainly there were quantities of gold available. That's obviously how you paid a lot of people, the, the species in play but I have never heard of one verified story of missing gold on the Great Lakes. Okay. Yeah, supposedly there was- The nearest a... thing that's come to that has been the silver ore that was mined up in the Lake Superior and uh, lost on the Powabic down in Lake Huron, a comet, excuse me, in the eastern end of Lake Superior, which was carrying a partial cargo of silver ore. But that, again, even to salvage that today, it would be pretty dicey whether or not that had a net real economic value to it. Sure. Other than that, it's the copper from the Poabic uh, mine that was lost on, I can't think of the name of the ship, the Poabic, I think, down off uh, Lake Huron, in Lake Huron. As a, as a jeweler with gold hire, um, hovering at about an all-time high, 
I'm still kind of crossing my fingers when I'm out there swimming one of these days. I'm going to see some shimmering coins floating from this alleged Civil War gold. <laughs> you might well find a coin or two. I have friends that have uh, dealing on shipwrecks, but basically the ones with the safes have been recovered, broken open by salvagers way back, right after the event, the hard hat divers, and they didn't get everything. So you would find perhaps a $10 gold piece or a $5 gold piece, uh, but those are extremely rare. Yeah. And we're... But we all love a gold story. We all get tantalized by pirate gold and treasure. That's right. That's right. And and this one, uh, your book, Lake Superior Shipwreck Coast, this one's a, a personal favorite of mine. I've just always been drawn to that area. How many wrecks stretch from Whitefish Point past Vermilion Point, Deer Point, Chris Point, uh, in that in that stretch of uh, of uh, what's what's known the shipwreck uh, uh, shore there? Traditionally, people will say about a hundred. Uh, that's probably on the high side. My guess is put it closer to 75 or so. But if you understand the weather dynamics up there, they all make sense because the predominant wind direction will be northwest, uh, north-northwest with a strong northeast perhaps. So you've got a huge fetch that you can build waves up under. And then you have a nice sandy shore coming up with offshore sandbars. Uh, you can get in trouble very, very quickly, and that's the end of it. We just made a passage to, as you and I discussed yesterday, to, to Beaver Island. Right now, Lake Michigan is about as placid as I've ever seen it. And I was just hoping the whole time it would just stay nice and calm. I'm okay with that. But you can see things. I've, I've been on the water before and had things turn dicey really quickly, too, out there. And that can, uh, that can be very, very spooky. There's stories about morticians from Sault Ste. Marie paying $5 a body for people that would walk the shores in the spring and summer looking for the... the, the you know, unfortunate remains of those that had uh, had lost their lives during winter storms. Not uncommon. Now, that's I've never heard of of the uh, undertakers paying for that service. The government usually provided it because of the life-saving crews that were interlacing. In other words, running up from Vermilion. Let me get this straight: Vermilion, Two Heart, Crisps. And then finally into uh, Deer Park. And each one of those was spaced eight miles apart. And come springtime, that's when your lifesavers went out on patrol. And particularly keeping their eyes open for bodies that came on from the fall wrecks. And in many cases, they would find them frozen quite literally in a block of ice. So they'd have to chop the body out, put it on a sled drag it to wherever the nearest transportation point was or put it on the wagon and get it into town for proper disposal. In some instances, they could identify it, the remains, and then they would be shipped back home for burial. In other cases, they couldn't identify or nobody identified them, didn't want them back. So they would end up in the local cemetery, usually just in an unmarked grave. And if you're in the little Mission Hill Cemetery up on top of the bluff, uh, there's the mystic up there that I think is five or six or seven, perhaps, uh, sailors from that wreck that are generally unidentified. I was just going to bring that up. They uh, they found them in, they were all intertwined with ice. They were frozen together, and that's how they were buried. Um, yeah. uh, there's, uh, there's even a, a ghost story that involves the life-saving service. In a similar situation, uh, as I mentioned, they would patrol the beach, particularly at night, and you did that with a, a costume flare, a railroad flare in your hand. 
that you could use the signal back to the station if you saw a shipwreck in progress or found somebody on shore or needed assistance. But the story goes that they were out, found the, the individual frozen in the ice, managed to chop them out, get them to uh, proper disposal. And in so chopping, though, they apparently missed and chopped two fingers off Ouch. his right hand. Well, you can see it. You can understand how it occurs. Nobody got really excited. They left the fingers on the beach. But thereafter, when a lifesaver was making his lonely patrol alone, the story always went that he could hear behind him the slow, steady tread of that two-fingered Riley, who turned out to be Riley, the second engineer of the, of the vessel, searching the beach, looking for his missing fingers. So that became the ghost story of the lifesavers. This is as good as, as any I've ever heard. Um, and, and you mentioned that you know, those um, lighthouses were staggered about eight miles apart. And at night, from what I've read, it was common for one of the assistants at least to walk the shore. They'd walk back and forth. They'd meet the, um, the, the keeper or the assistant from a reciprocal lighthouse they would have to hand off a, a marker a tag so when they returned they could show that they actually had gone that four miles back and forth that night um, yep they had to do a key exchange or a tag exchange to prove it you, and the guy at the end station just had to find a watch panel or a watch stand and he had the recorder's clock the time clock to check in with the, again prove they had done their duty one of my favorite places to venture up the beaten path is uh, Vermilion Point, just west of uh, Whitefish. White yeah. Whitefish. I love it up there. It's absolutely incredible. Um, and you have a book about the U.S. life-saving services, Wreck Ashore. The, the men that manned Vermilion Life-Saving Station were world famous. They even gave presentations at the World's Fair. They were, they were a good bunch. Uh, that's sometimes something that's disconstrued. What they would do, let's see if I can explain this, uh, life-saving services under Treasury Department, they don't have a lot of money. Uh, the fellow who's the general superintendent, Sumner Increase Kimball, uh, was a tight-fisted, well, great manager, terrific fellow, ended up in charge of the life-savers for 44 years until he finally retired at age 88. Uh, certainly couldn't do that today. His crew's both loved them and hated him and often referred to him as the beady eyed little bastard. <laughs> but I think they'd probably get it with a smile. Uh, he was, he was good. But one of the ways they had to publicize what the service was doing to get additional funding from Congress was to, to take it out to each of the great world's fair and put a demonstration crew at the station. In other words, when they did the great world's fair in Chicago in 1892, there was a demonstration life-saving service building built. Uh, there was a lagoon there, so they took the lifeboats out and, and did their, their stunts with those. Uh, they brought the Lyle guns down, showed how those worked. They were the ambassadors of the service and enjoyed themselves immensely doing that. Well, the men who formed that crew were picked men. You never sent a whole station. You took one man, perhaps, from Vermilion. You might take one from Point... Cape Disappointment, Washington, you might take one from the Dead Rocks, Maine. You assemble a crew of 10 of them, 10, no, it would have been, would have been eight, plus a keeper selected to run the crew, a demonstrator, train them up, 
make sure they were they're on their P's and Q's and doing everything correctly. And that man they always had as the keeper was Henry J. Cleary out of Marquette. He had a relationship with uh, with Kimball, got along well with him. Kimball had his faith and trust in him. So it was always Henry that did that. And through that maybe 30 or 40 year periods when uh, World's Fairs and, and national expositions were so popular, uh, they would take these guys to most of them, including the ones in San Francisco, Hampton Beach, uh, another one in New York, another one up in Washington. Uh, and they would be there as a crew, select men from all over the service, not a single crew ever. So sometimes when you read the literature, it'll say the crew was so good they went and did this. Uh, misstatement, misinformation, not understanding the how the service worked and how things functioned that uh, that sometimes is an assumption made but it was not true they went as individuals mm -hmm. did they take people out during the course of a demonstration season uh, yeah that happened too he replaced joe with jack jack came in from someplace else fit right in because the training was exactly the same the regulations applied equally to everybody so if you were a good man in one station you were a good man in another station and this was not a job for the faint of heart. This was this th these men went out towards boats that are floundering in volatile yeah. seas. It's freezing cold. There's stories of them coming back in, having to be chopped out of their life vests. And th 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 this was not a job again that most of us would would wish to have. Uh, regulations say we had to go out. They didn't say we had to come back. Ouch. They lived it. Forty four of them in the Great Lakes were killed or died as a result of service injury. There was no insurance. There was no death penalty. There was no medical care. It was sailor, you know, sailor gear. Gordon Lightfoot, one of my favorite musicians, just passed away. And Gordon, of course, will probably be best remembered for his tribute to one of the world's most famous maritime disasters, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And although, the, although there have been countless lives claimed by the depths of the world's waters over the millennium, uh, the tragedy of the 29 li lives that were lost on November 10, 1975 in Lake Superior, uh, combined with Lightfoot's composition, poetic lyrics, emotionally provocative music, immediately struck a chord internationally and essentially kind of became an anthem for all that have been touched by such tragedy. Um, we have a few minutes left, but y your book on the Fitz is now in its, its 20th printing, it says online. Could be, probably. It's um, I, I, at least 20 printings. I don't know. There's probably another 10 revisions in it as it's been updated over time. There'll be an updated edition coming out for the uh, 50th anniversary. When, when did you, when did you, uh, when was yours published? 1977. It was number one. So quite, quite soon afterwards. Uh, it has done well. Uh, one reviewer called it the the, uh, the gold standard for Fitzgerald books. Wow. Because I don't advocate a position. I don't say I alone know it wasn't this, that, or the other thing. You just lay out the evidence and make your pick. Great approach. Congratulations for that that um, accolade. It's it's interesting to me when I was looking it up. It, the, the, it lies in about 530 feet of water. 
But if you were to stand that boat or that ship on its end, I always make a joke, you know, um, Jack saved Rose with a, with a pallet. Um, you could imagine the depth of the water seems so, so great there, but not in comparison to the length of the, of the ship. No, you're, you're right. I mean, by theory, her nose could be buried in the mud and her, her screw could be hanging out of the water. And that was, in fact, one of the theories of the loss, that the structural integrity of the boat at that point caused it to crack in two, mm-hmm. just by pure physics. But I've known two people that were, that were out on Superior that night. One gentleman found a shoal, he and his son were able to, to weather out the storm that night. Of course, it was extremely volatile. And then another gentleman was actually, uh, he was a seaman working that evening. And his theory, one of his theories was when that wave came over, and of course, you, you, and you tell me if you've heard anything about this. Uh, when that wave came over, the, the propeller of the ship actually caused it to act like a submarine and actually propelled it even deeper, almost instantaneously. And he thought some of the men on the boat could have lasted for up to 15, 20 minutes before it broke. Have you ever thought about that uh, theory? It's as good as any. It's, it remains a conundrum. Lots of theories, lots of ideas, no proof of any of it. I was, let me think now, 17 years after the wreck, 18 years after the wreck, the Great Lake Shipwreck Historical Society at Whitefish Point organized a expedition out to Fitzgerald uh, with the full blessing of the Canadian government, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, National Geographic, all of the people that were players in the Fitzgerald wreck and shipwreck exploration in general. I was aboard the, the vessel we were using, which was one of the fish and wildlife research vessels to do sonar work. We had a brand new sonar uh, color, high density, really cutting edge for the time. This was like 89, I think. Shot about four and a half, five hours of videotape, brought it back, uh, took that tape, went to a, a conference room, Michigan State University, brought in marine architects, vessel operators, vessel owners, uh, masters, literally about 45 people in that room that were connected in some fashion with ships on the Great Lakes, their operation, building, construction, etc. We viewed every frame of that video that we had shot, it was four and a half hours or so, with the view of finding out where is a clue show us something that shows us something and in three days of doing that nothing all of these experts looking at the original really really good product uh i mean three-dimensional high density nothing all these years later we may be back to the uh the the ufo in the eastern section of uh, lake superior huh we're getting that desperate (laughs) If my chooses to go that way, but it does prove that it is much like I think it was Winston Churchill called Russia, and that a riddle wrapped up in, a, in an enigma. It continues to uh, to pick at us and to fascinate so many people every year, every every November. And you, this is the fiftieth anniversary coming up. You said right? Next, uh, well, it'll come up in um, twenty-five. Wait, okay. Well, Frederick, it's been too cool having you on the podcast. Well, thank you, Chris. It's always interesting, always fun to, to yammer and jaw a little bit about the Great Lakes and everything happening. Mr. Stonehouse will be joining us again on our next episode as a co-guest, which will be about Standard Rock Lighthouse, known as the loneliest place on Earth. And we will learn 
not only about the history and mystery surrounding the infamous navigational beacon, but also about the equally important second incarnation, one of America's 10 most impressive examples of engineering is now serving. Thank you to our guest, author Frederick Stonehouse. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, inviting you to join us next time for more of Tales of Northern Missions Past.